Welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. We are in for a treat today. Today, <laughs> we are taking on the entire ring cycle of Richard Wagner. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined in the studio today by a special guest, Patria Fossil. Patria Fossil is with us. Hooray, Patria. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Patria, do you want to tell everyone how we decided to do this? Well, I know Pat from a book group, and we discovered by accident that we were both going to be going to Wagner's Ring Cycle in New York City at the Metropolitan Opera. And Pat has, it was going to be her second Ring Cycle. It was my first, and I thought, it would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, but now I'm kind of hooked. You've been bitten by the bug. I've been bitten by the bug, and apparently there are many people who feel this way, and they call themselves ringheads, and they go <laughs> to the ring cycle all over the world. Yeah, we. it was quite a treat to get to see it in New York recently. We're talking about the spring of 2019. And it was the production by Lepage. Yes. So we may mention that a bit as we go along, acknowledging there are different productions of The Ring, but that's what we just experienced. Yes, Robert Lepage, a Canadian, and he's known for creating this new production about 10 years ago for The Met with this amazing set called The Machine. Controversial with some traditional Wagner fans. I even have a desk toy of the machine that they sell in the gift shop. It's super fun. It doesn't look like a machine when you see it on stage, but it moves like there's machinery within it. It's very clever, actually. It's very clever. It's a way to have a single item on the stage for four separate operas, which is brilliant. A lot of projection technique used. Yes, very much technology. But if you talk to the traditional Wagner fans, he was, if he had had op- access to this kind of technology, he would have embraced it. Wagner. Well, he was an innovator, right? Yes, very innovative and very interested in drama and the stage and not just the music, but how the whole thing comes together. Absolutely. Well, we need to introduce these sets of operas. Do you want to say the name of the uh, the entire collection? Ooh, you said you studied German. I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> that was many years ago. <laughs> it is Der Ring des Nibelungen. Very good. The ring I'll of, say. Go, go ahead. The first one is Das Rheingold. It's about... The uh, gold? The gold coming from the Rhine. Yeah, it's a little bit problematic as the time goes on. And by the way, for those of you who are, this being opera for everyone, this is a a for everyone introduction. So join us as we do what's probably a little bit of an ambitious job in our two hour show to talk about the entire ring cycle, which is four operas, or as was called at, at the time, and sometimes still, it's a trilogy with a prologue. Because the first opera, Rheingold, is considered a prologue to the other three, which are the trilogy of the story. And it's really interesting that they were kind of written backwards. The, the, yeah, the story part was written. Well, do you want to talk about that, how it started out? Wagner's conception originally? Should we say the whole, all the other names first? The, of the... Okay, so opera one, if you were to go see The Ring Cycle now, as we recently did, opera one is Rheingold. Opera two. Die Valkyrie. 
And you all know a very famous tune from that, even if you don't know that you know yes. it. We'll get there. Siegfried. That's number three. And Gatterdammerung. Twilight of the Gods is number four. So it starts out focusing on Siegfried, this human character, or mostly human, <laughs> with, with a godly father. Uh, Siegfried is, his story was what Wagner originally wanted to focus on. But Wagner was also influenced by Norse mythology, old Germanic tales. The uh, Nibelungenleid is a is a book that or a story that he he took as one of his sources. And Siegfried's Tod was the original. The death of Siegfried was the original. So when he first wrote the Twilight of the Gods, he had a lot about Siegfried's death, and then he was trying to explain it in the beginning of the opera. And then he realized he needed more operas to explain what came before this end. Yeah, it didn't fit in a single opera. And by the way, with the exception of the prologue, which was two and a quarter or so hours, the other operas are, are more or less six hours each. Five to six hours each. Long operas. They start early, six o'clock, and end late. Yes, they're very long operas. Takes a little bit of planning to get through them. <laughs> <laughs> it does. <laughs> All right, so let's do a little bit of music and we'll tell a little more story. The The music that we heard right in the beginning, interesting that I'm, I don't even know if I'm going to take this on. My German is pretty rusty. Vea Vaga Voga Duvela. You can almost tell it if I, maybe if I said it. Vea Vaga Vola Duvela. Actually, it's like a nursery rhyme I've, I've heard. It's, they're kind of nonsense words, which will then transform into actual words. But we start off with these Rhine maidens, the maidens of the Rhine, the Rhine daughters, frolicking, essentially, in the water, enjoying themselves. Well, so, they're also there to guard the gold, right? Well, they do let us know that just a little bit later on. Oh, sorry. No, don't apologize. Let's listen to a little bit of that. to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and today we are taking on the entire <laughs> ring cycle of Richard Wagner. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by Patria Fossil. Patria, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Well, we've just been introduced to the Rhine Maidens, the ones who guard this gold. They seem like they're having a lovely, lovely time. And before we talk about what happens, because the music is going to turn dark pretty quickly when a not so lovely character shows up. 
We should probably talk about a little bit of backstory. And this is a little bit of that Germanic myth and Norse myth that Wagner more or less is assuming his audience has some familiarity with. Because when we are going to see the ruler of the gods, Wotan, we're going to see he has an eye patch on his eye. And that's never explained. But can you tell us why he has an eye patch? Yes. So he visited the world ash tree whose roots were being fed by the spring of eternal knowledge and whose branches held together the universe. And there were other realms. There was the upper realm where the gods lived. And then there was Riesenheim where the giants lived. And then there was the earth with the Rhine and the earth's daughters. And Nibelheim, which was an underneath subterranean realm inhabited by the Nibelungs. We'll get to Nibelheim a little bit later in the opera, (laughs) this particular opera. So Wotan wanted to drink from this spring of eternal knowledge, but he had to give up his eye in return for that wisdom. And he was able to tear a branch from that tree and shaped it into a spear. But the tree was wounded by that, and the waters around it dwindled and eventually failed. So it was kind of a not a good thing that he did. He had some flaws. But he, he thought it was a good thing. Well, he did, but it had impacts on the earth. But then that spear became a way for him to record binding treaties. and Which is how he gets his power. Yeah. He wraps everyone up in treaties, and those are recorded on his spear. Right. So and you know it's Wotan if he's got an eye patch and he's scaring a big spear. <laughs> yes, that's very helpful. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, that's what we're here for. <laughs> Yeah. So, the, and those are, and but they each tell you a little bit about the fact that he's powerful, but what he's had to do to get that power. All right, we're going to meet Votan soon, but before that, there's another character who's introduced. Alberic. And what's he all about? Alberic is from the lower regions. Nibelheim. Nibelheim. He's and a Nibelung. He's a Nibelung, and he is also. They call him a dwarf. So he comes and he sees these beautiful Rhine maidens and they flirt with him and he becomes very excited and then they're quite cruel and reject him. But he Kind also, of teasing him, right? They're teasing him. They call him old and ugly. They flirt with him. They get close to him and then they push him away. It, they, they really didn't treat him very well. And then they aren't doing a very good job of guarding the gold because they can't resist telling him that there's this gold. Right. And if and, someone... And it's sparkling. And it's, it's sparkling. Lovely. It's in the bottom of the Rhine. And one of the things the Nibelungs are known for is their ability to forge metals. Mm-hmm. And the Rhine maidens tell him that whoever steals or whoever has that gold and can turn it into a ring will have unlimited power. So, of course, he decides he wants it, but they said there's a catch. And the catch is, the only way to have it is to renounce love forever. And he thinks, hey, I'm not getting much love here anyway. (laughs) Exactly right. He accepted that condition when he was at a very weak moment, having been rejected by these three beautiful Rhine maidens. He renounces love forever, and he steals their gold. Grabs it. And in the second scene, we're going to change location entirely, and we're going to find ourselves high atop a mountain among the gods. 
That beautiful music is about where the gods live, in a new palace, Valhalla. Yeah, that's... Actually, this is a good time to talk about leitmotifs. Leitmotifs. That is something for which Wagner is famous. And that little tune that we just heard right there, we can play it again in a minute, that's the leitmotif which should make you think of Valhalla, or even more importantly, of Wotan, the leader of all the gods, this guy with the eye patch and the spear. And as you listen to the entire opera, which sadly we will not have time to play, or the entire cycle of operas, but as you listen to those, you will hear this same tune, maybe not identically, maybe a little shaded with meaning as it transforms, but that's going to mean either the home of the gods that Wotan had created, or it's going to mean Wotan himself. And then there's also a leitmotif for his spear, right? We talked about his spear. There, aren't there, there's like 70 leitmotifs, or depending on how you count them. There's many, many leitmotifs. But we'll talk about a few of them as we go. That, that very first tune that we heard with the Rhine maidens, the Rhine daughters, that's their leitmotif. You'll hear it in this opera and also in the final opera, Goto Demerung. But this Valhalla theme, this Wotan theme, you hear repeated over and over again. And we'll, we'll even mention that a little bit as we go along. And there'll be other ones, like the Valkyries. But there's a lot of them. There are, and, and they'll sound familiar to people. Some of them have been used in movies, so they'll sound familiar to our listeners. That's so true. They'll sound very familiar, in particular the Valkyries. <laughs> <laughs> I think there are others. I keep yes. hearing, as I've been listening to this and explanations of it, I keep hearing these familiar pieces of music, and I don't know where they're from, but probably movies or TV shows or something like or that. Or an ad jingle. Oh, right. there you go. Uh, I mean, be. I don't know. I don't know, but it's possible. But it's a very powerful way to enhance the storytelling or a very powerful way to do what ideally opera does, which is tell a story more richly because of all of the music. And that certainly is able to happen because of the use of leitmotifs and just because of the exquisite music. The music is exquisite. So we find ourselves with the gods here. And Wotan has just heard that his castle, his great Valhalla, it has been built. He's really excited, but we have a little domestic scene here with his wife, Fricka, who is not as impressed with this amazing building project. Part of it is because in order to pay for it, he had to pay giants to build the castle. He offered Fricka's sister Freya to the giants. As payment. As payment. What a great brother-in-law he is. Yes. <laughs> and Freya is important to the gods because she has these golden apples. And when they eat the golden apples, it keeps them young. So he didn't plan ahead too well when he, didn't he think offered it all through, her no. as mm. the price for building this castle. But and yet, he's the god who has to honor contracts. Exactly. So exactly. it's a little bit of a situation. So shall we hear the giants appearing? They, as you might guess, have their own little tune that yes. accompanies them.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone Takes on Wagner's Ring, an introduction. We're joined today by Patria Fossil. And uh, wow, if you didn't even know Patria, you would know something big had entered the stage by listening to that, wouldn't you? Yes, very big. <laughs> big and giant. Big giants. And their names are Faisalt and Fafner. And I think this is, might be a good time to mention that Wagner decided that they should be played by men with very deep voices. So they're yes. either bass or baritone. And yes. their music was very heavy. And what I've noticed being a new opera fan myself is that Wagner uses a lot of different men in his operas. Yes. And men with deep voices and men with lighter, beautiful voices. So these guys are definitely the deeper voice variety. Well, the giants are going to need a deep voice. But uh, so does Wotan also have a and deep Votan, voice. And yes. With his power position. And Alberic also has a deep voice. He's, he's a, a baddie. He's a bad, bad, baddie. Yeah, of course he's a bass. Wagner does keep to some of the conventions where some of the kinder, nicer ones or the romantic interests are the tenors in terms of the men. So these giants, they've come to collect their payment. Yes. How's that go? Does not go well. Poor Freya comes running into the palace or to the court and says they want me they're trying to get me they're trying to take me away save me help me and that's when he has to Votan has to fess up to his wife that he's bargained away her sister Fricka who's also goddess of marriage not too happy about this treatment she just wanted this house built this Valhalla to be built so there'd be a lovely home to keep her husband with her instead of running off and hanging out with all manner of people and women and fathering various children which he does as we'll find out later yes indeed so do they take Freya well Votan has a plan and it involves another demigod yes named Loge right also like Loki from the Norse mythology yes yes all right so um, Loga is brought in to assist Votan he's a trickster Yes. God of fire. Very clever. Wotan is completely relying on him to save him, though he has no idea what the plan will be. And Loge has just heard that Alberic stole the gold and made a ring, and that the ring would make whoever owns it the most powerful person in the universe. And Loge is telling this story to intrigue the giants and make them think of to distract them from taking Freya as payment so he's hoping to get them to ask for the gold instead right and they're kind of interested or at least one of them is particularly interested and is it Faisal who's kind of getting a crush on Freya so he's yes. not so sure about the gold but yes Fafner Fafner's all about the gold it's all about the gold so they say, okay, well, we'll think about this, but we're going to take Freya now just as a down payment. And a you security, have until yes. tonight to get me the gold. So then we find ourselves in the next scene in Nibelheim, under the earth. Under the earth. Where the Nibelung live. And it's worked out pretty well so far for Albrecht because he has a, a ring that's been fashioned for him and he's so powerful that he's been able to enslave all the rest of the Nibelung. Including his brother Mime. Including his brother Mime.
Well, that was a lot of interesting sound that we heard. What was that clanking? Actually, Wagner was very specific and, and stipulated that there had to be actual anvils in the in the orchestra. And it's a wonderful He didn't make it sound. easy for them, no, did he? No. <laughs> it's, it's a wonderful sound. And later in the Siegfried op- Opera, there's also an anvil. Right. It's one of my favorite Imagine pieces of music. being a musician and being told, no, you're not going to play a kettle drum. We'd like you to grab a hammer and play an anvil. But, wow, it sounded it's uh, It's perfect. Strong. It, it's perfect. It, it gives you the impression of metalworking. And that's what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, these, these Nibelung have made the, the ring, and they continue to mine and work the metals. Lots of gold. Lots of, well, you know, he's got the hoard from the, from the Rhine. And another special thing that gets formed down there yes. is a magic helmet. The Tarnhelm. The Tarnhelm. And what's magic about it? What's magic about it is that it can transform the wearer into any shape they like. And we're going to see something cool about that yes, shortly. And it can also turn them invisible. Makes me think of Harry Potter and the invisibility cloak. Yes, I think I think maybe the other way around, but yes. yes. <laughs> um, so we've discovered all of this, and then they have some visitors. Yes, Wotan and Loge coming down to the netherworld. And we know why they're there. To try and steal the ring. Right, because they're belief is, well, he stole the gold from the Rhine maidens. They might as well rob the thief. Right. Not not a strong moral compass here for our friend Wotan. Well, he's trying to save his sister-in-law and keep his wife off his back. (laughs) There you go. I believe. How do they go about stealing it? Because they are definitely outnumbered. They're not going to give it to them. So we've seen already how Loge can be so clever Mm. So this time he pretends not to be impressed by by the um, Tarnhelm. And so he asks for a demonstration from Alberic. So Alberic turns transforms himself into a giant snake dragon type creature. Right. So Loge goes, "Yes, well that's very impressive, but I bet you can't turn yourself into something really small. Only big stuff. Only big stuff. And small would be be too difficult for you. Yeah, too hard, too hard. So, of course... He should have smelled a trick coming. He should have smelled a trick. (laughs) (laughs) Elric falls for it and turns himself into a toad. Of course, once he's a little toad, Wotan and Loge jump on him and capture him, basically, and drag him back up into the world of the gods. So, poor Alberic. <laughs> They've captured him. And in the next scene, we'll be back on the top of the mountain with the gods just outside Valhalla. And Alberic is their prisoner. The Tarnhelm is no longer on him. He's bound and he's a prisoner. And they need his gold. And he's forced to summon the Nibelung. And much to his annoyance, because these folks that he has enslaved now have to see him bound and a prisoner of Wotan. I think at one point, doesn't he say, don't look at me? Oh, indeed. He's still ordering them around, even though he's a captive. He's been completely humiliated. So they bring up all the gold. That's right. And then the next scene is pretty funny, too. How's that funny? (laughs) So the giants, and apparently this is some 
a part of some tradition. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're ransoming someone, you have to be able to completely cover them in gold. So they, they put poor Freya in between some pillars or something, and they pile up all the gold around her. But Faisalt, who has his still has He's a got crush a, on quite a crush big crush yes. says i can still see her so votan and loge are saying well that's all the gold there is and so they said well what about the that helmet the tarnhelm so they put that on the pile and Faisal can still see her eye so they talk them into giving them the ring as well and votan's not eager to give up the ring not and we should have mentioned, but it's worth mentioning now because it will continue to be important. When Albrecht had to give up the ring, he cursed it. He did and said, anyone who wears this ring will die. So Wotan, he's wearing the ring. He doesn't want to give it up. And is this when we have a special visitor? So when Wotan has to part with the ring, we do indeed have a special visitor. Erda. She's the Earth Mother. The Earth Mother. She's an Earth Mother and comes up very mysteriously. And she warns Votan that he better give up the ring because he could bring the downfall of the gods. And then she disappears as mysteriously as she arrived. She is, I believe she's to represent almost an older grouping of gods very much bound to nature and she spends most of her time slumbering in the depths of the earth and allows her her daughters the norns to carry out most of the work of the threads of fate and they they do it by weaving these ropes and we'll see the norns later in, in another the, opera in the final opera absolutely but she's warned votan and erda will also since we're telling the story now we we could just tell you erda it turns out, is the mother of several of Votan's children, daughters all, the Valkyries. Yes, including the most important person in the opera. Can we introduce her? Oh, some people would say Siegfried, but I'm all in with Brunhilde myself. <laughs> Brunhilde. And could we just mention Brunhilde? Because when you see an icon for opera, including ours, a helmet and oftentimes blonde braids, Keeley posed for that at one point, that's Brunhilde. She is just this quintessential operatic figure, this powerful woman who is godlike for a time and very mortal for the rest of the time. So that's just a little flash forward. A little flash forward. I think that I remember reading that when Erda wouldn't give Wotan more information about what was going to happen, that he went down under the earth to find her, and that's when he fathered the Valkyrie. But back to the present plot, the giants end up being satisfied with the gold, except that... Well, the one who was more interested in the gold in the first place is more satisfied. Yes, and Faisalt, who still was sad to be losing Freya, is, does he have the ring? And then Fafner slays him, so already the curse is coming was, true. The curse is coming true. And the gods, this happens right in front of the gods, and they're horrified. And they see that this, this curse that Albrecht has put on the ring seems to be quite real. A very powerful curse, yes. And this will go all through the opera. And now the opera is going to end because they have paid off their builders. 
Freya is back with them so they can have their golden apples and remain forever youthful. And it's time for them to retire to their Valhalla on a very special walkway. A rainbow bridge. The rainbow bridge. And there's some beautiful music for that too, isn't there? It's very uh, powerful and huge swelling music. Yes, we're going to hear just a little bit of it. to Opera for Everyone here on 89.1 KHOL. Today we are taking on Richard Wagner's The Ring, Der Ring des Nibelungen. It is a bit of an unusual show for us because we are covering not just four operas, but three of the operas are five to six hours in length. Richard Wagner would not be pleased, I'm sure, but he was never pleased with anyone, was he? No, (laughs) he was a perfectionist, but brilliant. Brilliant. I mean, we probably worth mentioning at some point in the broadcast, and why not now? He was a loathsome human being. Controversial, for sure. He was controversial. I mean, he had writings, and uh, he, he was anti-Semitic. I mean, let's yes. just not be yes. unclear about that. And it's worth acknowledging whenever you're talking about Wagner in and amongst his many talents. He was very nationalistic, and nationalistic to such an extreme he didn't even believe everyone living in Germany or in the German states belonged there. And Hitler was a fan of his later. And so that that's is also part of, very controversial. Yeah, that's part of how history recalls Wagner because Hitler liked him so well. But there was a, a close friendship between his, I guess, daughter-in-law, Zygmunt's wife. Uh, you, you know that uh, Wagner named his son Zig. Yes. Not Zygmunt, excuse me, Siegfried. Siegfried, yes. His son from his second marriage. Yes. And he was apparently quite a ladies man. Yes, he was. So it's so funny because when I see the scenes between Wotan and Fricka, yes, I wonder whether some of those came from his own uh, first marriage. Yes. That is often talked about is with it? Wagner. Very okay. much so. The the housefrau who wants him just to stay home and behave himself. Right, right. Yes. But that's the thing about Wagner being newly introduced to Wagner is that the dialogues are so human. There's that, the, the domestic relationship between Wotan and Fricka, but also 
Siegfried as an obnoxious adolescent. Who we haven't met yet. Haven't met him but yet. But we will. Anyway. Yeah. No, it's, it's an interesting thing. His music is different. The way he composes operas or the way he conceives of operas, it's a different style. And Wagner was very self-conscious about that. He wanted to create a new kind of opera, something that was new and different. In fact, I had such fun the other night looking in the historical New York Times when they were writing night by night what was happening in Bayreuth, this little town where there's a specially built theater for this set of operas and ultimately for lots of Wagner operas. But there's a quote from Richard Wagner himself on that very first night where he says, and now we have a German art form. Of course, in the next day's paper, they had the correspondent saying he explained himself. Oh, no, I just meant the Germans have their own sort of opera now. The French have theirs, the Italians have theirs, and now Germany has her own. So he was very self-conscious about being a German composer, very nationalistic. Um, at some point on Opera for Everyone, we'll do Die Meistersinger, which is an incredibly nationalistic opera. But we are with the ring and we have finished the, not even the first opera as they would call it, but the prelude. Prelude to the To the three to the stories three. that come. <laughs> yes. And the first of these next three is arguably the most popular. The most well-known too, the Valkyries. The Ride of the Valkyries. Shall we just play a little snippet of that? Yes. for everyone that was just a little snippet of ride of the valkyries probably the best known piece of music from richard wagner in popular culture i would say it's beautiful music even if you associate it with more contemporary art or movies it certainly gets used that way but that does not appear in the beginning of this opera named for the valkyries so we have to wait till the third act to meet the valkyries so in the first act we have Sigmund, who is one of the heroes of this opera, and there's very complicated family relationships here. Yeah, that's an so understatement. So Sigmund has just been pursued by enemies, and he 
falls into the hearth of a, of a nearby home and exhausted from running from his enemies. And one thing you have to remember, which I think also this opera, you had mentioned Germanic and Norse myths, but also draws on some Greek myths. And I'm not sure where the That's guest true. host guest relationships were most important. Yeah. I know certainly in the Greek. Right. So he's going as a stranger and a woman, the woman of the house comes and says, well, who is this at my hearth? And passed ha- out. <laughs> he's passed out. And her husband hasn't come home yet, but his name is Hunding and her name is Siglinda. And you find out that Sigmund had grown up with his father, who was called Valsa, but was really Wotan. It was one of Wotan's little journeys to Earth where he fathered some children. Which um, can kind of remind you of Zeus, speaking of yes, the Greeks. Yes, absolutely. So Sigmund and Siglinda talk, and she says that at her wedding, there was a one-eyed stranger who put a, a sword in a tree. A one-eyed stranger. A one-eyed well, stranger. Wink, wink, we know who that Wait. is. Yes, we do. The guy With who gave up his eye for knowledge. For knowledge, pulls his hat down over his eye. But he left a sword in the tree, and no one has been able to pull it out. And Siglinda's in-laws were all warriors, and they all tried. And this also reminded me of a scene in the Odyssey with the bow that Odysseus yes, had. Yes, and I was thinking of the sword and the stone oh, that from too, the King later, Arthur King myth. Arthur, yeah. So yeah, there's, so there's a powerful theme. Image, yes, where somebody unexpectedly shows up and is able to pull out the sword. But that doesn't happen quite yet. Not quite yet. So Soon. Hunding comes back, says, who is this guy? And Sigmund tells a little bit of his story, and they realize that Sigmund is fleeing from Hunding's relatives. So Hunding is obligated to treat him as a guest and not kill him that night, but promises to fight him and kill him the next day. And part of why Sigmund was running away is that in his battle, he lost his weapons, and so he was defenseless. And he remembered that his father, Valsa, had promised him sword, right? That's right. In his hour of need. Yes. And another funny thing that Hunding says is these two look quite a lot alike. Yes. And we're not playing this at the moment. You're just going to have to take my word for it. At this time, when this is being noticed, the orchestra is telling us very clearly what's happening because they will play that Votan theme, that Valhalla Votan theme, to let us know that this Valsa, this similarity, it all ties back in together with Wotan. And the orchestra tells us that if we're listening to it. It's wonderful. He does that again and again. That was just one of the ones that I, in fact, noticed while I was watching The Ring recently. So Hunding goes out 
and Siglinda and Sigmund developing this relationship. They have feelings for each other. They sort of recognize each other. And finally, Siglinda, oh, he tells the story of how he was born and his mother and his mother was killed and his sister was taken away and or he, disappeared he doesn't know what happened to the sister and it turns out she was in fact taken away and so he lived with his father and wandered around his father had a nickname wolf well it turns out yes that siglinda and sigmund are twins and yes. she was the sister who disappeared Meanwhile, they're falling physically and passionately in love. There's all kinds of things wrong with that, right? They're brother and sister. She's already married, which comes up in the second scene right. as to repercussions for breaking that taboo. Right. But in the meantime, we just have beautiful love music and Siglinda gives her husband a sleeping potion and she shows Sigmund the sword in the tree and of course he's able to pull it out because and it was there's meant some for wonderful him. music the music the leitmotif of the sword which is named Natung which means need or even emergency so in his hour of need he had been promised by his father Wolf Valsa who was really Votan that he would provide him with a sword and here it is he needs it to fight Hunding the next morning. So Sigmund has the sword and he claims Siglinda as his bride and they rush off into the night passionately in love. Oh, those crazy kids. I have a feeling Hunding's not going to be happy. I don't think Hunding is going to be happy at all. No, not at all. So in our next act, we get to meet the famous Valkyrie, the beloved daughter of Wotan. And we learn later she's also the daughter of Erda, the Earth Mother. But she is the one who knows Wotan best and the one who understands his desires and works to carry them out. Should we say a little bit about the Valkyries? This yes, is, This is please. Brunhilde. This is Brunhilde. And really going to be one of the most important people in the, in the three last operas. But the Valkyries were warriors, and their job was to pick up slain heroes from the battlefields and take them on their horses flying through the air to Valhalla, where they became bodyguards of the gods, of Wotan in particular. And Brunhilde's horse has a name, and that is Grana. So when we first meet Brunhilde, we get to hear the warrior cry of the Valkyries. Oh, my God. 
Wow, that was something. It's probably a good time to say that was Birgit Nielsen doing fabulous soprano work in the role of Brunhilde. Very famous Swedish soprano from the 1950s, sang in a lot of Wagner's operas. This particular recording was made in 1963 with the Vienna Philharmonic and Sir Georg Solti conducting. Well, now that we've met the Valkyrie, the title character, she's in and amongst Wotan and the family. Well, they have a wonderful father-daughter conversation, and he tells her that he wants her to protect Sigmund and the fight with Hunding, and she's fine with that. Because that's what she does. Yes, and he's really kind of a half-brother to her, too, I guess. Yeah. Gets complicated with same father, guys. different mother. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So she sees Fricka, Votan's unhappy wife, coming, and she doesn't want to witness any domestic quarrels. So she leaves, but th- she thinks that they have a plan to protect Sigmund, and off she goes. And then Fricka has other ideas. She does. And Goddess this, of marriage. Yes, the sanctity of marriage. And yeah. how does doesn't she arrive in a cart drawn by two goats that's something well i think the uh, original libretto says rams two rams draw the cart but i've also read that even wagner didn't pull that off ah okay so in some grand fashion she arrives yes to lay down the law to the man who must obey contracts and respect yes that staff you know has all those contracts written on it so he gets kind of stuck well, because the husband of Sieglinda, Hunding, his wife has been taken away. And so he prays to the goddess of marriage, Fricka, for protection of his marriage. And don't you think there's a little something there where Fricka is also super annoyed with Votan for fathering all these children on earth and he, under the earth? <laughs> she would like it if he just stayed home. Yes. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Not likely. So he realizes that her arguments are too strong and so he agrees very very reluctantly because he really does love Sigmund yeah, they go around a few times and, uh, yeah. but he basically just loses he does lose and this is again where you kind of wonder about Wagner and his first wife it's a fair comment so then Brunhilde comes back and finds out that everything has been changed so Brunhilde when she comes in she thinks the plan is settled but it's not so settled because grudgingly Wotan says, okay, daughter, you can't fight on the side of Sigmund. You have to protect Hundig. And she can't quite get it through her head what he's saying because she knows that Sigmund is a special favorite of Wotan's. Yes. So she goes off. It looks like she's going to obey Wotan, but she comes across Sigmund and Sieglinde in the forest or maybe she just appears to him and says to him look you're gonna die and because to- you're looking in the face of the valkyrie right and that's what oh, she does yes i forgot that part right if you if see a-, a valkyrie in the face yes. it means you're fated to die yes and he says no no i've got this magic sword and she says i'm sorry the guy who gave it the magic has taken it away right and He says, I don't want to go to Valhalla. I want to stay with Sieglinda. I love her. Well, he was going to be okay going to Valhalla if he could have Sieglinda with him. Right. And that wasn't going to happen. No, that's not allowed. So he said he'd rather go to hell. And Brunhilde is so touched by his love for Sieglinda 
that she decides to well and and Zygmunt even threatens like very actively not just a, an idle threat to kill Sieglinda so they could both die together ah I forgot that part yeah that's part of what pulls it yeah Brunhilde's heartstrings yes so she is so moved by that that she decides to defy her father Wotan because she knows what he really wants right this is so complicated that's right she does know what he really wants but it doesn't turn out well in the battle the next day no so what happens in the battle Wotan comes on the battle scene and sees that Brunhilde is helping Sigmund and the sword is they're they're beating Hunding and he's furious and he uses his spear to shatter the sword the sword that he had Notun Notun the emergency sword it is shattered by Wotan's spear and and that's, that's the, the end, end of Sigmund Sigmund is killed yes and Sieglinda is carried away by Brunhilde on her horse Grana Right, and they, and she also gathers up the pieces of the broken sword. Oh yes, very important. Very important. The broken sword. And we might meet some people in the future who have the skills to put that back together again. And also, it's this amazing moment at the end of all that, because of course, Wotan is brokenhearted. And he looks at Hundig, who's all pleased with himself because oh, he's won yes. the battle. And he angrily says, go! And in that moment, Hundig falls dead on the spot. Yes. They really got to get rid of these characters somehow, right? Right. He lets him win the battle. But then... Yes. So he honored Fricka, his wife's request. But in the end, didn't turn out very well for Hundig. Yeah. Did Did not turn out well for him, ultimately. And then we come to Act Three.
listening to an introduction to Richard Wagner's The Ring Cycle on Opera for Everyone, 
a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. I'm your host, Pat Wright, joined today by special guest co-host Patria Fossil. Stay with us to find out how things work out when you defy your father, and he's the leader of the gods. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone, and on today's program we are doing The Ring, the whole, whole ring by Richard Wagner. I'm Pat Wright, your host, and I'm joined today in the studio by Patria Fossil. Thank you. Thanks, Patria. Patria and I ran into each other in New York recently watching The Ring Cycle, and what a magnificent production we saw. It was truly magnificent. It was my first Ring Cycle. Pat second. Just my second. Just. I know. We're going to become, we're on the way to becoming ring heads. Well, you know, my second watching of The Ring and working in opera for everyone reinforces what I've been learning and, and find about opera. Don't treat it like a book or a movie where you don't want to know the end ahead of time. Opera rewards familiarity. Opera rewards spending time knowing the story and knowing the music a little bit because there's so much rich detail to absorb. If you have a little bit of knowledge, it helps. And I found that with just the second time watching The Ring that I pick up these different motifs and hear when the orchestra was telling me something that the composer wanted me to know about the story that was not being said or acted out by the participants on stage. I found this book called Wagner Without Fear by William Berger, which was a suggestion from Greg Wright, to be really, really helpful in approaching this for the first time. And so I agree with you that some study and familiarity and listening just has enriched my appreciation immeasurably. It helps. Well, the music that we went out on at the end of the first half, spectacular, Ride of the Valkyries. We all love it. It gets the blood pumping. But now we need to learn a little bit more about what's going on in the story with these Valkyries. So we are on a rock and all the Valkyries are there and they're counting. So everybody has everybody come back from the battles. Is everybody ready to take their warriors to Valhalla, whatever? Where's Brunhilde? Brunhilde's not there. And then they see her horse, Grana, arriving with Brunhilde, but Brunhilde is not carrying a wounded warrior, a dead warrior. She's carrying a woman. A woman. What's that all about? Well, we know because we just saw her scoot away with Zieglinda. Zieglinda who we find out is... Is carrying Zygmunt's child. Yes. Somebody who's going to be very important in the future. In fact, he'll even have a whole opera named after him. Siegfried. Yes, <laughs> yes. So she arrives with Zieglinda on the horse, and she's frantic. Yes, and her sisters are going, what's wrong? What's wrong? Then they realize that she has defied their father, Wotan. And the sisters, as much as they love her, are terrified of Wotan. So they won't help her. And Zieglinda kind of wakes up and she said, oh, just leave me. My life is too miserable. My love is dead. Brunhilde tells her that she's carrying the child. So then she's, she gets a lot of energy and courage and she goes off in the woods. And Brunhilde gives her the pieces of the sword Notung, which had been smashed by Wotan's spear 
in the prior act. So Zieglinda is told to leave. It's the safest thing for you. In fact, there's this part of the forest where Wotan never goes. So you go there, take this sword. It's going to be hard for you, Zieglinda, but it's important that you have and take care of this baby. And Wotan appears. And he is not happy. No. So the other Valkyries, the sisters, kind of disappear. Some of them consider standing up Mm. for Brunhilde, but he says, I'm going to punish you as as much as I punish Brunhilde if you don't back down. Right. And And the the punishment was going to be becoming mortal, Right. right? That was part of it. Right. Then it gets worse. He said that he's going to put her to sleep, and then other fairy tales come to mind, my mind, and that the first person who wakes her up takes her as his wife. So not only will she no longer be a partial god, she won't be independent. Right. In other words, she has to be like any ordinary mortal woman, where when she's married, she loses her rights. Right. She's, yes. And we've already seen a couple of loveless marriages here. Right. Zieglinda and hunting. You might even argue Wotan and Fricka. Not that they're mortal, but they yes. They mortal, but unhappily married. And Brunhilde will plead her case, saying, but father, I did what you truly wanted. Not what you told me, but what you wanted. And they go round and round a few times, but ultimately she doesn't win the argument. This is what's so tragic about it is that she really did try to save Sigmund because she knew Wotan loved him and he understands that that's what she did but he still has to punish her. Right. But she manages to make the curse a little less. She's like okay everything you said but make it so whatever man finds me must be courageous. A hero. With great courage unusual for mankind surround me with a ring of fire and at first he says that's too much to ask for but then he relents yes because he loves her he loved Sigmund he's really sad that it turned out the way it did right and many will argue that this is the most touching scene of the daughter and the father or you could even argue he has to kiss goodbye a part of himself because by her knowing his every internal thought the way she does, people oftentimes see her as just an aspect of him, a portion of him. You know by the, the title of the last opera, The Twilight of the Gods, that it's going downhill for the gods. And this is him letting some of that go. Yes. Can we hear some of the music? Thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Thank you. 
And so we come to the end of the opera. And how does Wotan say goodbye to Brunhilde? He kisses her and puts her to sleep. And then he calls on Loge to come and create a ring of fire. And he, by the way, her. he's put her helmet on and her breastplate oh, yes. protecting this her. This is very important for the next opera. Right. Yes. So she's put to sleep looking like the warrior that she has been. And he kisses her, puts her into a deep sleep, and Loge comes and creates this incredibly intimidating ring of fire around her, which will protect her until the right hero comes along to wake her up. And that is the end of the Valkyrie. And we move into the next opera named Siegfried. Of course, that's the son of Sieglinda and Sigmund. But when we open Siegfried, the opera, we don't open on him as a character. We open on a character we've seen before, but in a very different context. This is Mima. Mima, as you might remember, was the enslaved brother of Alberic. He's a Nibelung and very skilled with forging metal. And he happens to be taking care of Siegfried because when Sieglinda arrived in the forest, she was sent towards a part of the forest Wotan didn't go. So one reason Wotan didn't go into the forest was because Mima was there and Fafner was there having turned himself into a dragon to protect the ring and the gold. And to show his true personality. Because the world of fairy tales and stories full of dragons protecting their hordes of gold. I always think of smog. So Zinglinda went pregnant into the forest and she came upon the dwarf Mime, who had been enslaved by his brother Alberic before the ring was stolen from him. And she says, please help me and raise this baby and you must call him Siegfried. And this is when she knows she's dying after she having she's given birth. dying in childbirth, I right. guess, basically. Right. And his name has to be Siegfried. And so it is. Yeah. 
And that was Siegfried entering with his foster father, Mima, and Mima's working away, and we find that there's a particular thing that Mima's working on, and he's being completely unsuccessful. And that is the sword, not tongue. The broken sword that Brunhilde picked up and gave to his mother. Siegfried, honestly, is very unappealing when he first shows up. He comes across as this entitled young man, berating this father figure about why haven't you fixed this? How hard can it be? But we do learn that Mima has done all of the things that he's done, not for the good of Zieglinda and honoring her request or for the good of the boy, but he sees an opportunity to get his hands on the gold and the whole treasure which his brother had used to subjugate him and all he has to do is kill that dragon and he's got just the man who can do it. Mima is hoping that he can forge a sword strong enough for Siegfried to kill Fafner, the dragon, and then Mima will get the ring back. But he can't fix this sword. Can't fix that sword. Siegfried runs off into the forest and a stranger comes in dressed as a wanderer, disguised as a wanderer. And the orchestra tells us who it is. Motif. And they have a play a game of riddles, and at the end, Mima loses, but the wanderer says to him, Only a person who knows no fear can reforge the magic blade. So Siegfried comes back and he tries to explain fear to Siegfried, and Siegfried doesn't understand what it is. So Mima proposes going to visit Fafner's cave, and Siegfried says, Great. He said, I'll make the sword myself. And never having shown any aptitude for forging. Or interest, yes. He repairs the sword and there's some wonderful music with these anvils again getting some use. second act of Siegfried, we find ourselves by the dragon's lair. And who's lurking around the dragon and the gold? Our old friend Alberic, who stole the gold in the first place. He's not my friend. <laughs> Mima's brother. Yes. And Wotan appears as the wanderer, 
We have a lot of characters in here, all of them pretty evil and trying to warn each other. But the bottom line is Siegfried does slay the dragon. And he's the man with no fear. And he's got that really cool sword. He got very cool sword. <laughs> And as with his dying breath, Fafner, the dragon, former giant, warns Siegfried about Mima's plan to poison him and steal the ring. We also neglected to mention that there was a little bird, and I always wonder if it's like a little bird told me if that expression comes from this opera. Because when he slew the... It's a helpful little bird. Slew the dragon, Siegfried touched some of the blood to his lip, and it made him able to understand the bird. And here's Wagner's bringing nature back in, which he started first thing with the, the Rhine maidens, and the beauty and simplicity of nature. and The inherent goodness, I think. Yes, and this is where also where Siegfried was so sad and asking whether all mothers die when they give birth to sons. Right, well, he's not seen a woman ever. Ever. He's heard they exist, but he's not seen one, and he honestly did not have a very loving father. No. Well, Mima was always just raising him in order to have him as a vehicle to slay the dragon and get the gold back. Exactly. So. But when he's warned and he confronts Mima, it doesn't end well for Mima. No, and there are some funny things where he can hear Mima's thoughts, so that that's a little bit comical in that scene in the opera, too. Yeah, although Mima doesn't find it funny at all. No, can't understand. Because he's trying to drug Siegfried. Anyway, Mima ends up dead. Mima ends up dead. The dragon's dead. And the little bird tells Siegfried something very oh, wonderful. Yes, very wonderful. So Siegfried doesn't care about the gold. He just leaves the gold in the cave. But he does take the ring and the Tarnhelm. Right. And the little bird tells him that there is a beautiful maiden... I think she names her Brunhilde, surrounded by fire, but only someone who knows no fear. And by the way, Mima had hoped that Siegfried would learn fear when he was confronting the dragon, but he didn't learn no fear, fear then. No fear there. Yeah, he's, he's so a hero. now, according to the little bird, he because he knows no fear has a chance of penetrating the fire ring, protecting the sleeping Brunhilde. And that takes us to Act Three.
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. I'm here with Patria. Patria and I are doing four long operas in one opera for everyone. None other than Richard Wagner's The Ring. We're at the beginning of Act 3 of Siegfried. High on a mountain pass, we see the wanderer. Wotan. He tries to, to talk to Erda again, the one who appeared in the Rheingold. The Earth Mother, the mother of the Valkyries the ancient earth spirit and her power is apparently waning because she's very sleepy and confused and she ends up not being able to tell him anything he doesn't get any new information from erda and meanwhile siegfried comes along and he just sees this old man and isn't very impressed with him and continuing on with his youthful arrogance right yes his youthful arrogance but he does actually smash Wotan's spear with his sword, Natung, and he realizes that it was Wotan's spear that had smashed the sword of his father, Sigmund. So that's the end of Wotan's spear, and it's just another... Another step in the decline of exactly. Wotan and the, and and he, the, the gods, gods he represents. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yes. So and then now we get to the delightful the good scene part. at the end where the ring of fire is surrounding Brunhilde and the man who knows no fear goes right through, goes right through. And he sees this recumbent figure with a shield, thinks it's a warrior. Well, wouldn't you? Yes. Removes the breastplate and says, this is not a man. Which Wagner may or may not pretty. have intended to be funny, but most people <laughs> laugh when they hear it. Yeah, and that's true. <laughs> then he knows fear for the first time. He's never seen a woman before. Leave it to a woman. <laughs> Even one who's not conscious. <laughs> right. So... He kisses her and she wakes up and they fall in love. And, and the rest is beautiful music, honestly. Lots of beautiful music. She knows that if she gives in to him that she will lose some of her, well, her independence certainly, but also some of her powers. And so the opera Siegfried ends in glorious passion as these two souls unite. Oh, <laughs> 
Welcome back to Opera for Everyone and three cheers for all of you who stayed with us this far. Three operas down, one to go. This is the final opera of the trilogy, which also had an opera prelude. And this opera, Gotodamerong, begins with a, an act, which appears to be an act, which is its own prelude. And we see the Norns, the daughters of the Earth Mother, Erda, weaving the ropes of fate. And they tell us quite a lot about the story as they're doing it, but it's all very mysterious because they don't speak as clearly as other characters might speak. And then as the second half of the prologue, we see dawn breaking on Siegfried and Brunhilde, who appear to have had a lovely time together. And it's time, because after all, Siegfried is a hero, for him to go off on adventures. So before he goes, he gives Brunhilde his ring, the ring, and she lets him take her horse, Grana. And she also casts a protective spell on him. Yes, this is important for later. Because she knows that he is fearless and a wonderful warrior, and so the entire front of his body is protected like a shield. No need to protect the back, because he would never turn his back in battle. Like an Achilles heel. A little bit like that. You know, one other a side note about the Greeks. We mentioned the Greeks before, but the Greeks also were an inspiration to Wagner in terms of the way they presented their plays with music, but also that they were the center of festivals. Ah. And is that where he got the idea? This for is a, a true inspiration oh, okay. for Wagner, going back to the ancient Greeks. He was a particular fan of Aeschylus. But we also know of other, other authors, the Greek authors, who had trilogies, for example. Those were very common, having trilogies, but it was presented as part of a big festival where people would stop whatever they were doing and gather together and have a community experience. And that is part of what he tried to do, Wagner tried to do, by setting up this festival house in Bayreuth, not in a big city, and by producing this opera as a trilogy with a prologue. <laughs> anyway, just wanted to give that nod to the ancient Greek influence as well. And I think as a budding ringhead, I have to go there sometime. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it will happen. <laughs> All right, so we've set Siegfried off on his adventures because that's what heroes do. Let's listen to a little of that orchestral music as Siegfried travels the Rhine. soon in act one we find ourselves in the hall of the gibichungs mortals mortals brother and sister gunter and gudrun and they have an advisor named hagen huh. i don't think we know yet oh let's just say it because this is opera this is opera he is the son of alberic who we met in the very first opera the gentleman who had to the dwarf who had to renounce love so how does he have a son he bribed an earthly woman with gold in order to bear a child for him because he's still trying to get the ring back 
and this is going to be his way. So now we have a couple of future generations from the original protagonists. Right. Wotan's grandson, Siegfried, and Alberic's son, Hagen, are now in the court of the Gibichungs, who are kind of a not very impressive brother-sister ruler act. But they're the local grand family. Local grand family. Neither one is married. Hagen comes up with this great idea. He says, Gunther, you should marry this most exquisite of all women, Brunhilde. And he says to Gertruna, you should marry this great, dashing hero, strong, handsome man. But Gudrun's no dummy. She said, why would that guy fall for me? Hagen Mm. says, well, I can make a potion that when he drinks it, he'll forget every other woman he's ever loved and fall in love with you. I love potions. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) We'll see, I'm sure. So right on cue, I, I believe we have... Siegfried shows up on his adventures. He's greeted as a hero, and Hagen puts his plan into action and gives Siegfried this magic potion, and he immediately forgets Brunhilde. Well, you know what I love? Right before he drinks it, he toasts to Brunhilde's memory. Yes, you're right. Yes. And then he drinks, and all memory is gone. Yes. Men... (laughs) (laughs) magic potions we'll give them an excuse so Gunther and Siegfried do a little bro bonding yeah bro bonding yeah they become blood brothers you know swords are pulled blood is drawn it's all very dramatic and Gunther tells Siegfried there's this woman that I love and need to get to but it's it's treacherous and Siegfried is quite confident in his abilities and he offers, because he's got this magic Tarnhelm with him, he offers to impersonate Gunther in order to find this damsel on the hill who is surrounded and protected by fire. And, Again. you know, a, a full Cyrano de Bergerac situation where he's going to woo for his friend. Well, what's an interesting thing, again, what could go wrong, an interesting thing is that the tenor, Siegfried yes. is played by a tenor, right. has to sing in a lower range as if he's Gunther. Right. So off they go on their quest, leaving Hagen in charge of the castle with the sister, Gertruna. Thank you. 
Meanwhile, Brunhilde is alone on the rock, and she hears a familiar sound of horses going through the air. Dum da da dum 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 da da dum dum. Sorry. <laughs> And it's her, it's her Valkyrie sister, Valtrauta. And Brunhilde is very excited to see her because she thinks perhaps Wotan has relented and will let her come back and come to Valhalla and everything. But that is not why Valtrauta is coming. She's coming to beg Brunhilde to give the ring back to the Rhine maidens. She says Wotan is incredibly depressed. He doesn't want to do anything. He just is waiting for the end. And he wants Brunhilde to give the ring back because that will mean the end of the gods and the chance for a new era. And Brunhilde acts like a truly mortal woman about her wedding ring. She says, no, this is a symbol of the man I love. He gave it to me. I couldn't possibly part with it. Yes. Because she she was turned into a mortal by her father. And she learned about mortal love. And so her Valkyrie sister leaves sadly. Very sadly. Knowing that this is probably a decision that's going to mean the end of the gods. Yes. Did we mention what Gotodamerung means, the name of this opera? I think we talked about it being the twilight of the gods. Twilight of the gods. Yes. All right. And we talked about Wotan's staff being broken, Broken. and Mm -hmm. that was another step. Just a little, you know. (laughs) And that's the end of Act One. And in Act 2, we're back at the Hall of the Gibichungs. And that's where we're very clear at this point 
that Hagen is Albrecht's son because he's going to appear in a dream. And in that dream, he's going to remind his son, Hagen, that he must win back the ring. So then Siegfried arrives with the horse and says that he has left Brunhilde with Gunther and they're arriving soon, but he was able to get there more quickly. Because he's done the old switcheroo. Yes, he's switched back to his regular appearance. He gets ready to marry Gutruna because he's wildly in love with her ever since drinking the potion. Yes, only because of drinking the potion. She's but a, she, of course, she's a pretty is, lady. She is, and she's in love with him. So it's kind of sad. Both the the brothers and brother and sister were both kind of duped by Hagen. So Brunhilde and Gunther arrive. And by the way, Brunhilde believed that now this was another further punishment of Wotan that another man came and has taken her as his wife. So and she, she's really angry, and she's particularly confused when she sees. Siegfried standing there with this other woman. Very confusing. And angry. And she sees the ring on his finger. So when Brunhilde sees the ring on Siegfried's finger, the confusion only mounts because it was the man who spent the night with her, the guy who looked like Gunther, who took the ring from her by force. And we know, of course, that it was Siegfried in the guise of Gunther 
who spent the night with her, by the way, putting the sword between them. So it was a chaste evening. And she's furious because how can you have the ring when this other man took my ring? None of this is making any sense whatsoever. But in spite of Brunhilde saying, you're my husband, you're my husband, Siegfried just ignores her essentially and is all over Gertruna. He doesn't recognize her. Not Everybody thinks she's just crazy. That's right. And it's, it's a very frustrating situation for Brunhilde. But in spite of all her accusations, she's told to get ready. You're, you're marrying Gunther. Gertruna's marrying Siegfried. And that's just how it is. And she wants revenge. She is so angry. Hagen, of course, someone who feeds on hate, offers to have Siegfried killed. And Gunther will come in and not want to kill his blood brother, but he also realizes that his blood brother is after his betrothed, his intended wife. And so he ultimately decides to give in because in a moment of anger, Brunhilde has let it be known that the only way to kill Siegfried is from behind. He's protected in the front, but he's vulnerable behind. And being stabbed in the back is right up Hagen's alley. Oh yeah, he can totally handle that. So there's this sham hunting party. Which is into act three. Yes, zooming along. So there's sham hunting party. Siegfried is alone and he meets the Rhine maidens. He's been hunting, but he, he lost his quarry. And what do the Rhine maidens want? The Rhine maidens beg him beg him to give back the ring and he refuses and they tell him about the curse which he didn't know anything about and that say if you keep the ring you will die and he's like i'm not afraid of anything yep yeah but the rhine maidens those natural beings those daughters of the rhine they know what they're talking about yes so the hunting party comes along they find siegfried and they ask him this is an interesting scene. They ask him to kind of recount his tales of heroism. And at the same time, Hagen gives him another potion to undo the, the first, first one. one. Mm-hmm. So then everybody kind of realizes all the treachery that has gone on. But in the meantime, Hagen kills Siegfried by stabbing him in the back. So we do have the one piece of satisfaction that right before he dies, he remembers Brunhilde and his love for her. Yes, yes. Thank goodness. It would be such an unsatisfying opera if that hadn't happened. Oh, there's going to be satisfaction at the end. At the end, it's just, it's it's famously complex. And honestly, I think you have to watch them all quite a few times to get all of the musical details there. But all the little strands come together. All the little motifs resolve. Because ultimately, we're going to find that Gertruna learns that Siegfried has died. Her heart is broken. And she accuses Gunther of being in on the murder, which of course he was. He didn't do the murder, but he was—he knew it was going to happen. And they fight about the ring. Gunther is killed when he fights with Hagen. Hagen reaches for this ring because that's been his life's work. He was conceived to get this ring. He reaches for the ring. A very dramatic moment. Yes. The dead Siegfried's arm with the ring on it rises, which of course terrifies everyone it would scare me and prevents Hagen from actually taking the ring Brunhilde shows up and she orders calmly orders a funeral pyre to be built on the banks of the Rhine because that's how you honor a hero properly yes and she denounces the gods for their part in Siegfried's death 
takes the ring from his hand and promises it to the Rhine maidens. She had not wanted to do that before, but now she's ready. And she well, she's a little clearer on the stakes when she finds that this ring and all of its curses are for real, and the only place it belongs is back with the Rhine maidens. Yes. So she lights the funeral pyre and mounts her horse Gran and triumphantly rides into the flames. And the fire consumes the hall, and then the river overflows its banks. And Hagen, one last attempt, tries to grab the ring from the Rhine Maidens, but they drag him down to the depths. Brunhilde essentially saves the day for the Rhine Maidens, for the earth, through self-sacrifice. Yes, and so this is the fire and the water. Cleanse. Cleanse all of the evil. And off in the distance? Valhalla? Valhalla burns. It is also engulfed in flames. The tree, Wotan had had that original tree cut up into logs and stacked around Valhalla. So he intended for it to all go up in flames. And it does amazingly go up in flames. So there's the fire of the funeral pyre, the fire of Valhalla, the cleansing water of the river Rhine, and the twilight, the end of the gods, and the beginning of a new era of man. Beautiful. Patria, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to go out on this final intense music of Gotodemeron, the final opera of this enormous cycle. Everyone, I've been your host for Opera for Everyone, Pat Wright, joined fabulously by Patria Fossil here in the studio. Thank you so much, Patria. Thank you. This was really fun.
Thanks for joining us for Opera for Everyone's introductory program on Richard Wagner's The Ring of the Nibelung. I'm Pat Wright, and I was joined today by guest co-host Patria Fossil. If you missed any of today's show, you can find this episode and many others on your favorite podcast app under Opera for Everyone. Opera for Everyone airs every Sunday morning from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL Jackson, Wyoming. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story, and a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable because we believe opera is for everyone.